0: Mark Graben and Jamie Flinchball are two guys drinking whiskey while chatting about lean ideas, experiences, and news. Let's hope they hold their liquor because they're not holding back on sharing their opinions. It's time for Lean Whiskey, Lean Talk with a Fun Spirit. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 19 of Lean Whiskey. I'm Mark Graben. I'm in California. It's daytime. And we're joined by a special co-host today. Different circumstances, I'll let you give the rundown. Who and where and what time of day?
1: So, my name is Cliff, uh, and I'm based out of Stockholm, Sweden. Uh, Yeah, and it is uh, probably a more appropriate time for drinking whiskey at at 21 minutes past 9 p.m., Uh, and it's it's actually quite nice and warm, uh, this side of the world. Um, Yeah, so... I don't know. It's a good time to be drinking whiskey. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to hanging out and having yeah. a catch up.
0: Yeah. Well, that's, that's what the podcast is all about. Um, you you yeah. probably still have some daylight.
1: A little bit. Uh, we're getting kind of late in, in the summer now. So it's, we're sort of getting into the autumn and leaves starting to go uh, autumn and the fall. I actually, that's one of the, the American names I quite like uh, fall. It makes so much more sense than autumn. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean the leaves fall, it's pretty straightforward. Um, yeah, but we're we're still still a little bit of light, but it's definitely getting more dark now. Um, we, we lose roughly half an hour of, of light per week. Mm, uh wow. okay so yeah, but it was you know, sunset was at eleven thirty a few weeks ago. So yeah, <laughs> yep. we've we've had enough sun for a while. <laughs> yeah, but that's the
0: opposite. The one time I've been to Stockholm was January or February. So that was the other mm-hmm. extreme of the very short dim day. Yeah. The one time, the one opportunity I had to go to Helsinki was the end of May, so that was quite the other extreme. <laughs> so I'll yeah. hopefully someday get back to Stockholm in the summertime.
1: Yeah, we could film another episode and drink some some whiskey in person. That would be yeah. nice. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. So before we, we we learn more about your background and um, what what you're doing, you know, one thing I always do when we have a guest host is kind of chat about well, where did we drink whiskey and talk about lean or related things in person? Because that's really the criteria for being um, yeah. a guest host over the internet. Have we done something like this together in person? Do, do you want to tell, kind of introduce that? Sure. How, we met, how um, and where we met up story?
1: So you, you may have to fill in some details because my my memory, what I find interesting is when you tell the story, uh, our memories probably differ ever so slightly. But, <laughs> well, peace um, Yeah. Um, so we we were in Austin, uh, Texas. Actually, um, I was I was out there for the Lean Summit or Lean Coaching Summit, I think it was called. Um, it was I've actually done a couple of different uh, Lean conferences, um, mostly talking about my experiences because I spent about four and a half years working at Spotify uh, during some of the rapid growth stages. Um, and we were talking about a couple of things and I think I just tweeted that I had arrived at the conference day early and I was hanging out in the sort of downstairs restaurant. Uh, was is anyone keen to hang out? And, uh, as luck would have it, you replied and, you know, we chatted, I think a little bit on Twitter. I'd read a few of your blog posts and, you know, kind of knew a little bit about what you were doing, uh, and hop, skip and a jump probably half an hour to an hour later, uh, you me and jim benson were drinking bourbon in a little bar in downtown austin uh and yeah that yeah. was that was the start of what led to this yeah uh, so
0: yeah, yeah and that, that was a good time um and you 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 had known jim previously or known of jim was that the first time you met him
1: i I had actually never met Jim in person. I'd seen him speak once or twice at a conference, uh, and I kind of know him generally through the circles. Uh, but we hadn't we hadn't met. We certainly hadn't drunk whiskey together before. Uh, <laughs> so that was that was pretty cool as well. Um, yeah. It was I remember there was some little whiskey bar, and we ended up, I think the second night we went out, or maybe it was later that same evening, but I, I think it was the second night we ended up drinking whiskey at another place, uh, and you were telling me all about some of your favorites. And if I remember correctly, they actually happened to have one of the um, – uh, the Garrison Brothers—they had one of their whiskeys in that place, so that was my first taste of uh, one of your favorites. So that was yeah. that was a cool experience. Um, Proper yeah.
0: Texas bourbon. Um, yeah, I think we were in the. I think we were in the bar of the Driscoll Hotel, which is an old historic,
1: famous. That awesome rings place. a bell. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. That was a good time. I I really enjoyed Austin. It was is it the first time I've actually been inside Texas. I would flown through a couple of times, but never actually inside. And yeah, yeah. I remember quite a few people telling me that Austin and Texas are slightly different places. But <laughs> oh, um, yeah, I, I got a, a bit of a taste, so it was nice. Yeah.
0: So yeah. um, I, and and I don't ask this question in the spirit of you made a bad decision, but why come to Texas to learn about <laughs> lean and coaching? I mean, it's a huge long trip and a big expense and I, I was I'm just curious I mean and and the people at lean frontiers do great events including the lean coaching summit I mean I was there so yeah. I don't think it was a bad decision but it's just a couple hours drive down yeah. the road for me but w- why do that
1: yeah. so I mean there's, there's at least Two reasons, and it, the first one was the invitation. Uh, so I, I actually got a mail from John Shook who said, "You know, I'd done one of his conferences in Barcelona a couple of years before, uh, and he said we're hosting this thing out uh, out Austin side, um, and I think." Uh, Basically he was saying I think that your talk would be interesting because you you've been talking about some cool stuff um we we'd hung out a couple of times i just I actually got subbed in for a friend once at a conference uh, he couldn't make it and so I was like tagged in at the last minute we met each other through that and uh next thing i I think now probably at the lean frontiers I've probably spoken at about four or five of their conferences mm-hmm. um in all in all in different countries um and so for me, it was mostly an opportunity to you know Sort of pay one back to John because he he'd done a couple of cool things uh, for me in the past, uh, and also an opportunity to see a part of the world that I haven't been so much to. I I've been privileged to spend a fair amount of time in the U.S., but never in Texas. And so I thought, yeah, sounds like a great opportunity. Uh, I looked at the speaker lineup; there were a bunch of cool people hanging out. I knew there would be plenty of people in the audience, and I'd had great fun at the events in the past. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, I did a bit of a turn back via New York and spent some time with my team that side. So it was able to tack it onto a business trip. So it wasn't just in and out for for sort of the two days. But yeah, yeah I I will take almost well pre COVID I would have taken almost any opportunity to go somewhere cool and interesting and hang out with nice people. So yeah. um, and I'm I'm very glad I did. So yeah.
0: well, that was <laughs> yeah. a good time. And um, anyway, talking about traveling the world, um, listeners or viewers may may pick up on. Maybe it doesn't sound like you're from Stockholm originally.
1: Uh, no. <laughs> Despite the fact that I grew a beard and look slightly more hipster than when I arrived, um, I, I'm not originally Swedish. Um, yeah, I, I get a lot of guesses as Australian and New Zealand, but uh, my home is actually Cape Town, South Africa. Um, I, I'm not born there, but that's that's where I would be if I wasn't living here. Um, yeah, it's it's a lovely part of the world. But apparently my accent is not very South African. But I think the sort of... The, the Bond villain version of the South African accent is not the same one that I have. So uh, it it somehow sounds a bit different.
0: Well, and I've yeah. learned um, not through anything too horribly embarrassing, but I've learned not to guess about accents <laughs> because the opportunity <laughs> to be wrong is so much greater than the payoff from being right. So especially yeah. if, if you know, if you guess that somebody is Scottish and they're actually Welsh and you like, you just don't want to get into <laughs> Any, uh, any hard, creating any hard feelings over, uh, over guessing wrong.
1: Yeah, you can definitely start some trouble. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Canadian and American is one that's tricky if you muddle as well. Um, that that, that oh. one always a fine.
0: Yeah, so I can, well, and maybe it's, just, it's a matter of context where I, I can pick up usually very quickly if somebody uh, is from Canada. Yeah. But I, I grew up near Detroit where you had, you had a lot of exposure to Canadian television ah uh, yeah um yeah at least I, yeah so um but yeah imagine you know uh, people in different parts of the world may have trouble distinguishing the difference between australia and new zealand or ireland sure. and scotland or
1: yeah yeah um, it's but so speaking it's of definitely getting, exposure thing i think yeah, yeah. yeah. but i was
0: going to say speaking of getting into trouble um we would raised a glass and
1: and go, in,
0: go into uh, the segment here where we we talk about what we're sipping on uh, and why. Um,
1: Give it a good solid sniff before we start. Yeah, hmm.
0: um, sure. it's not great listening for those on the audio podcast
1: feed. Yeah, it's sort of <laughs> it's an interesting. <laughs>
0: Um, that's where maybe the listener is pausing and taking a sip of their own. But um, I'll, I'll let you go first, Cliff. What, what are you uh, What are you sipping on there?
1: So I'm I'm sipping on uh, an Amrut Fusion, as it's called, uh, which surprisingly enough is a Indian whiskey. Uh, I did not know until this bottle was in my hands that India even made whiskey, yeah. um, and so that was quite a, a happy discovery. Um, my wife actually bought it for me in duty free, uh, not not in duty free actually. It was uh, in a store outside of the duty free, but in uh, I think it was in Uganda actually, funnily yeah. enough. Um, and arrived home with this whiskey and said, I have no idea if it's going to be any good. Uh, I didn't know that India made whiskey. I didn't know that Ugandans sold whiskey. Um, but here it is. Uh, and I tasted it, was very impressed, and then found out that Amrut has actually won a bunch of awards. Right. Um, and yeah, thus started my journey. I have been quite fascinated to see some more of their stuff. But um, yeah. that's what I have in my glass right now.
0: Yeah. Well, good. Um, I've, I've, I've had that before there. I'm blanking out on the names. There are a few other whiskeys that I've seen, uh, from, from India, but I mean, I think it's amazing yeah. to see, um, what, what's being distilled, um, all around the world. It's not the exclusive domain of of Scotland or, or the U S anymore. And you, know, yeah. you see, uh, whiskey pretty much all around the world. Um, even in countries you wouldn't associate with whiskey, France distills sure. not just uh, Cognac and, and Armagnac, but there, there are French whiskeys. And, and I learned Fran- France is actually um, a really uh, big consumer of whiskey, sure. I think secondary to wine.
1: I wonder if that's, yeah, I wonder what causes that, because I, I kind of think of French as drinking pretty much nothing but wine and, Yeah. Or maybe distilled yeah. wine,
0: if you want to go crazy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somehow that would feel more natural than whiskey. But um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's one of my favorite things to do when I I go somewhere new is to to find out what what do the locals eat and drink, um, and you you find some wonderful things, you find some very surprising flavors and tastes as well. But um, yeah. I, I love that sort of experiencing it like the locals do, kind of vibe. And so, yeah.
0: So help, a, help refresh my memory. So when I was in Stockholm, I was hmm. trying to drink local and that doesn't mean just whiskey, but um, it wasn't vodka, but it was a clear liquor that was sort of very cold with like a frozen cranberry. Frozen that, cranberry.
1: So, so the, the common Swedish drink, especially around midsummer and like any kind of celebratory thing would be to drink what you would call a schnapps, but it's, it's uh, it's aquavit would is what you call it in Swedish. Um, it's basically, it, it's quite close to a vodka or a cane. I think it's, a, I mean, it's a distilled whiskey uh, or distilled liquor. Um, but they put a lot of, uh, anything from, um, uh, juniper to, you know, all kinds of different berries and flavors, uh, a lot of different woods. You get ones with wormwood and different things. So you get very interesting flavors. Yeah. Um, and the the sort of sweet the Swedish tradition is that you you pour yourself a shot uh you sing a very short sort of ten fifteen second song uh, and then skål, which is cheers, and you knock the shot back um, and rather rinse repeat until you're you're done or the bottle is uh, and that's basically the plan
0: <laughs> and and I remember yeah. um, consuming that with um, like along the lines of eating local uh reindeer which i maybe a yeah. little bit different in the u.s we would call venison which which sounds sure. a bit less like you're ruining christmas
1: <laughs> um, and it's then, not rudolph uh, anymore
0: no and then um uh, uh, bear yeah bear yeah shoulder um, in particular i remember interesting i
1: i've only eaten it eaten bears as, as a like a mince or meatball variation mm-hmm. um apparently there's a very strict they they do culling for sort of population control reasons but there's very limited licenses for for hunting bears Um, and pretty much all the meat ends up going to the restaurants Uh, it it makes sense i think that they use use -hmm. the meat for something good Uh, if they were just farming the bears or killing them for no reason maybe i would feel a bit differently but um yeah it's it is interesting to try whatever the local variations are yeah um yeah yeah
0: and maybe we'll yeah we we'll look forward to being able to get back to that. Um, yeah. you know, we can, uh, still import, uh, goods, so we can still perhaps drink whiskeys um, from around the world and you're, yeah. you're drinking, um, uh, whiskey from India. I'm drinking a whiskey from Tennessee, but you're, you're yeah. able to get bourbon or American whiskey,
1: we are sometimes. And actually, as a result of my tweeting requests, uh, I, I posted a photo a couple of days ago or yesterday, I think, um, asking which one I should drink um, on Twitter. And I found out as a result, a friend messaged me privately, there's actually a way to be able to uh, order pretty much anything you want through the... Because Sweden has an alcohol monopoly that's own, owned by the state that controls all the liquor sales. Um, right. It has some pros and cons, but it's, uh, you know... Um, you can actually get them to import uh, pretty much anything you want. Uh, you will probably pay quite a pretty penny for it. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, and it can take some time, obviously, as I think especially in current times. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I may have to find myself some some Garrison Brothers and a few other bits and pieces and uh, stock up on on some good bourbons because yeah. Yeah, I probably won't be in the US for a little while, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But so what I'm drinking is um, from Tennessee and even though I still love my Texas bourbon and and bourbon is most associated with um, Kentucky. So what I'm drinking here and I think there's an interesting story behind it. So, you know, it's a Mm. Tennessee whiskey, which is, you know, a specific designation. Jack Daniels being the most famous of the Tennessee whiskeys um, would would probably legally, technically also categorize um, as, as a bourbon but Tennessee is known in particular for the charcoal filtering with that unique process after it's been distilled. And, yeah. um, you know, a little bit of history that had been lost or covered up for a while, um, is you know, going back to the mid 19th century. Um, so you know, uh, Jack Daniels learned whiskey making from uh, a Tennessee slave who was nicknamed sure. uncle nearest. And um, in recent years, and I'll, I'll link to, to a story about um, all of this history uh, in the show notes. In recent years, for one, Jack Daniels has actually started acknowledging some of that legacy and history oh, wow. uh, as part of their tour at the Jack Daniels Distillery. Um, and then in recent years, um, th- this brand was launched um, called Uncle Nearest in honor, and it is uh, you know, it's a minority owned um, distillery and right. um, it, it's, it's won some awards. It's um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, and I think, you know, there's, there's an interesting story and to, and to think about, you know uh, you, you had somebody with this whiskey knowledge who wasn't able to um, turn that into a business uh, on their own 150 years ago, but uh, yeah. So even sure. with some of that, that sadness around that, it's a, it's a, it's a delightful. Whiskey and uh, you know, I think it's worth honoring that history a little bit.:
1: Very cool. yeah. So cheers. cheers. to a good story that's yeah. yeah.
0: a good story to, told badly by me, perhaps, but we uh, I'll, I'll, I'll link to the story instead of reading um, the packaging and the little booklet yeah <laughs> that came with it. Um, So back back to Twitter, and you know Jamie Flinchbaugh and I often talk about stories that are in the news or articles we've read. Tweets are a lot easier to digest. <laughs>
1: even <laughs> kind of get the headline and the punchline in one go. Yeah, um,
0: yeah. even up you know up to two hundred. It's two hundred eighty characters now. More.
1: Or less. I think so. Yeah, because they they doubled it or they, they definitely increased it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and the link doesn't count toward that. So yeah, we'll call it roughly. tweets are longer than they used to be but even with that I think um, and and I you know uh, follow you on Twitter and you've had a lot of tweets that as you said you know I replied to one of your tweets I'll I'll bring it up here in a second and as you said lots of nuance to explore here so that's what a podcast Mm -hmm. is good for right
1: yeah yeah I I find it interesting because in general I, I sort of think of it as tweeting is is sort of the headline of something but there's there's always something deeper underneath it and what I find fascinating is you sort of you have something that either could be quite a sort of considered thought or even something that's maybe a little bit more it's been bouncing around your head, but you're not quite sure how to get it out there. And probably it becomes a blog post or something a little bit longer or a, a you know, bigger discussion in a podcast. But what I like about it is you get to put it out into the world and other people either resonate with it or they add something, they give some feedback, they explore some nuance. And so I've been I've been really enjoying that process of Just kind of kicking the ball around a little bit with other people and seeing, Mm -hmm. oh, okay, there's there's certain domains that I know nothing about where people come from a different lens and share fascinating perspectives that it kind of rounds out your thinking a bit more, and I I really enjoy that process. So yeah,
0: yeah, uh, sometimes it's it's interesting to see what resonates, and then like you said, elaborate on that. Yeah, um, once people have expressed interest in a thought. Now, do do you have the the tweets handy? I do. I, I could yes. tweet. Um, do I start with the Deadwood tweet? Sure. I'm changing the sequence that had been sort of planned out. But yeah, it's your tweet. So it's- we'll hear it in your voice.
1: <laughs> sure. So the the tweet is actually it's a paraphrasing that I only found out afterwards uh, is actually from uh, from Deming. Mm-hmm. Um, not surprisingly, that a lot of smart things that come out of other people's mouths are influenced by Deming. Right. Um, but the, the, the tweet is if if you have dead wood in your company, uh, there's really only kind of two ways that it got there: is either you hired live wood, um, or either you hired dead wood, or you hired live wood and killed it. Um, and I, I use this in in several of my talks because. I think so much of what we're trying to do is kind of, you know, you're trying to create an organization where people can bring some of their knowledge to bear. And very often you see people departing or leaving a company, usually out of sort of a frustration or becoming dead wood and some unhappiness that arises. And so in exploring some of these topics, i found this tweet really resonates uh, with quite a lot of people. It's, you know, if people are not, not performing to the level that you expect, it's either something in your environment that creates that situation or you've just hired the wrong people the first time around. And both of those things are within your control to influence and change. And, yeah.
0: As, as executives <laughs> or startup founders or CEOs or what have you. Um, yeah, I, 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 I don't care for, you know, when I see executives somehow playing the victim. I'm like Oh, we're saddled with all of these lousy employees. Well, like, again, how did that come to be? Um, yeah. We can ask even a few whys. Yeah. Oh, well, okay, if that is true, and, and you know, <laughs> question and challenge, if that really is true, is the problem bad people? Is it bad systems? Is it bad culture?
1: Sure. Um,
0: that all comes back, as Dr. Deming would have said, um, that comes back on uh, on senior leaders. And you know, I think if we are taking the live wood and killing it, are we learning anything so that we can prevent... That cycle from continuing drum out the dead wood hire in some fresh-faced enthusiastic people and then see where they are and what their attitudes are like five or ten or twenty years later if you've even kept them that long
1: yeah I, i mean i think there's a lot of different reasons why people may depart from a company or or change their mind about something but certainly what i've seen is very often uh yeah both personally and i mean i've probably also guilty of this as a manager in my past as well you know uh, it's it's a hard thing to know how to create a good environment for people to be able to feel like they belong and perform can perform well and connect to the others around them and so yeah it's it's a fairly not flippant comment but it's it's quite cutting and direct but it's also i i usually in the talk kind of acknowledge that there's a lot of nuance and and sort of complexity behind this it's it's not it's not that simple. But if we don't have, at least acknowledge that we have some responsibility, um, you know, I, I like this metaphor of of creating culture as a sort of like gardening. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you can't you can't tell the plants to grow. You can't set them KPIs and give them motivational speeches. That doesn't work, right? Um, you you have to really create an environment. You know, you plant at the right time. You give enough water and enough light, but not too much water or too much light. And that whole thing of creating balance and each plant is a little bit different. You create the conditions for the plant to grow rather than making the plant grow. And I think that makes a lot more sense, you know, for organizations and and working with people. Yeah. Um, well, and what yeah.
0: you say about different plants being unique, requiring different amounts of light or exposure or water, reminds me of something else Dr. Deming said of, you know, the, the most important thing for managers is to understand their employees as individuals. Yes, that what might be motivating uh, or not demotivating to one person might not apply to somebody else. So, you know, I, yeah. I know, you know I've worked with a lot of people in healthcare, and I know a lot of um, nurses and healthcare practitioners, and you know it's interesting to see the disconnects between what leaders think counts as recognition and how some yeah. of the staff see it. So, healthcare is notorious for you know sometimes. Um, you know, almost working people to death and, and then throwing a pizza party. <laughs> yeah. And, and then the nurses sometimes roll their eyes. Like you think a little bit of pizza makes this all okay. Yeah. <laughs> and what about the people who are gluten free? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. No, it, it really, it, it does surprise me how often the, the blame, I mean, I, I recognize this because I, I think, I, I probably do the same, but there's there's sort of a tendency that I, I recognize to sort of externalize responsibility for something. You know, it's it, it's not me that's the problem. It must be those people over there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, if, if we can at least acknowledge that we have some responsibility in the situation, I think we can do a little bit more about it. And yeah, as I said, it's it's still super hard to get right. But you're more likely to get it right if you're at least involving some of your humans in that conversation. And, mm-hmm. you know, what is the right environment? Do you even like pizza? You know what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Are you sick of pizza? Amazed... because That's what we do every time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and yeah. so you,
0: you mentioned I think you kind of transitioned into one of the other tweets that had caught my eye recently related to karma, or at least that's how you started off the tweet.
1: Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to open that one quickly here. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's probably a longer story behind this, but, uh, you know, maybe too much detail for, for the, the topic at hand. But, uh, what I said was, I, I don't believe in karma. Uh, I do believe I have very little effect from blaming or ranting. Uh, I sometimes tell myself it helps, but usually that's not true either. Uh, and when I'm able to, or when I'm not able to reach someone, if I ask why most of the truthful answers are me and my behavior. Mm -hmm. And what was kind of going through my head is that I've I've seen a lot of times both myself, but uh, in this particular case, I was sort of observing somebody else doing something that I recognize myself having done many times. And so I was sort of reflecting on them doing the thing that I have often done. Um, And you sort of say, well, you know, we're trying to change this organization, but that person won't listen. You know, senior people don't listen to us coaches about that thing or, you know, whatever it is. And sort of, again, a little bit connected to the previous one, we end up kind of blaming them, um, which is, I think, a little bit ironic because it works the other way around as well. It's, it's sort of, we're doing the thing we're complaining about, um, which I find amusing. Um, but yeah, really, at, I think at its core, the, the only person that I can directly change through my own sort of immediate influence is me. Right. And I, I don't know. Oh, you've, do you know Esther Derby?
0: I've, I've, heard, I've heard the name, but I, I, I yeah. don't know her. Uh, yeah. Certainly heard of her, but yeah. Tell, tell us more
1: about her. I, I found, so I, 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 been on multiple of Esther's workshops and and learned some fantastic things from her. One one of them was this concept of reframing. Um, And she she talks about the power of, if if you're familiar with some of the the stuff in sort of the topic of growth mindset, the the idea of framing something in a neutral or ideally positive sense, even when it is negative. Um, So one of the fantastic examples uh, I heard was this idea of uh, that person is always very commanding and kind of dictatorial in their approach. And she really it as they typically only use one form of power Mm. and what i found quite powerful about this was this idea of it it clearly opens up some possibility for ways to be able to work with that person maybe to either reflect that to them but it it's not it's not saying you're wrong it's simply saying maybe maybe using that form of power is good but not in all scenarios Mm. and so maybe helping to you know how can you explore some other forms of or other ways of interacting. Um, and I think that was a little bit was kind of what was behind my, my tweet is if I, I frame it as actually I'm seeing them as the problem, but they also have their own motivations and their own desires, dreams, and hopes. And I shouldn't negate them by, you know, I just showed up yesterday as a coach and why should they listen to me? They've been running the company for 25 years, you know?
0: <laughs> and, and that sort of reminds me of, I'm going to have to paraphrase it, but if, um, if the, the, he passed away a couple years ago. John Perry Barlow mm-hmm. from the Electronic Frontier F- Foundation. Yeah, um, he you know was really really big into um, internet freedom, and um, he wrote songs for the, the Grateful Dead, and he had this very interesting um, eclectic life. And um, but there, there, there's a quote from him. I'm going to paraphrase it. Um, I'm butchering it, but But basically it was this reminder of, you know, if you disagree with somebody or you think that they're wrong, you have to, you're better off assuming that their viewpoint is coming from good intentions, just as your stance is. Yeah. And you know, uh, that might not be true hundred percent of the time, but I think let's say in workplace issues, sure. If um, you're trying to influence people or trying to affect change like the one thing I think I've learned is that it's not hate, not helpful to label somebody as resistant. Like no. They just step back and try to better understand their perspective. And again, they're probably well-intentioned um, and, um, you know, externalizing it, as you put it, I think is unhelpful. We can step back yeah. and think, you know, I, um, friends who used to work at Toyota talk about the culture there of very much internalizing, how did we let the employee down? Like when there's yeah. a big quality problem, instead of blaming the problem, leaders thinking about why didn't we create a system that prevented that from happening, which is, yeah. is more of that sort of internal, internalization, I guess.
1: What What I like about that as well is that it it kind of, if, it, it it kind of gives the leaders an opportunity to be able to do something like fairly concrete about it as opposed to going and just kind of dumping on that person over there. So, like, well, what can I do? Oh, I can actually influence the design of the system or, you know, we, we can create a sort of better learning capability uh, within the organization. And that's, yeah, I think, yeah, just kind of pointing over there and then using hope as a, well, we hope they will get it right. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. We, we should probably try to work together to figure things out. I think that, at least in my experience, that often works a lot better. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: And I think, you know, there's this, this journey of figuring out what works better and maybe I'll, I'll use that as a way of trying to segue to one of your other tweets uh, about metrics and KPIs, which is uh, a topic I sure. um, love talking about. And your, your, your tweet really caught my eye too.
1: Cool yeah so i I recently found myself having quite a few conversations with folks who were sort of starting out with metrics and you know they sort of realized that we don't have so many metrics and we're not really sure how to tell what's working well and how to kind of prioritize all of them and and usually the the response that I found was that people would kind of go out and go from zero metrics to like five hundred metrics right and to me this is weird because when I don't know something about like why would I go and invest in all of the options when I don't know what I'm yet actually needing and what I'm doing? Um, and so I had I, been thinking about this for a little while. And, and what I said was basically when you're starting out with metrics and KPIs, uh, you should probably consider three different questions, which was, you know, if, if this number, like if we had this number and if it went up, what would we do differently? If it went down, what would we do differently? And given you answers, why do you need that metric? And I asked this question in different variations of this to one specific client. And what was interesting was they kind of came up with this, well, actually, we don't know what we would do if it went up or down. <laughs> and so my question was, well, why do you need that metric? What what would it be for? Um, and so what it helped them to do was kind of think through the set of metrics that they have and sort of say, okay, well, we want to introduce all of these. We have some idea and we think there's probably something behind it. But if we can't explain some kind of directional shift or response uh to any of this data maybe maybe we don't need those ones and we can focus on some other set and so what it, i think it helped them to do was sort of reflect a little bit and go oh actually there's only three or four that we really know what we would do differently um which means we probably need to think about this a bit more but also maybe those are the fir- first set that we could start gathering because yeah gathering metrics and data and trying to make sense of them is not a free activity um it costs a lot of time. Yeah. Um,
0: I mean, there's that question. Yeah, I think that first important question of what should we measure and why, right? We often mm. look at what's easily measurable. And to your point, the fact that something's easy, easily measurable may not um, really be that meaningful. Um, or, I mean, yeah. I think it's interesting to think through, let's say, Eric Reese and the lean startup framework around vanity metrics, Some things that are easy to measure may make us feel good, but aren't really the best indicators about predicting um, growth or future success for the business. Sure. Why are we measuring it? Why does that measure matter? Like, I think in terms of health, the little bit I know about, let's say laboratory testing, there are literally hundreds of things you could measure about your blood and your uh, human system Um, But we don't do that on a daily basis or even a monthly basis or even on an annual basis. We don't look at all the possible measures. There's a handful of numbers that we probably can and should be looking at and um, making decisions about our health accordingly.
1: Yeah, and I I think that makes sense. I mean, this this thing getting into the whole metrics topic. There's there's so much around understanding. I mean, as you said, statisticals what's statistically meaningful, mm-hmm. um, because a lot of the time, what happens. I mean, I, I when I started investing for the first few times, you you read some of these fairly. Well, let me be careful how I say it, but like some of the blogs and posts that people make out there, like, you know, Apple went up by 1% and that's clearly because of X. And then tomorrow it's they went down also because of the same X. And I I realized quite quickly that mostly nobody has any idea what's actually going on. Uh, You can construct a narrative and say, well, this thing happened and this other unrelated thing happened and we draw some correlation between them because that's what we, I don't know, we need to tell a story. And in, in the news case, I guess it's because they get paid for news articles more than yeah. accuracy. Um, but it's the same challenge in a business context. You're know, you going to do something with the data. What are you going to do with it? Like, Why are you putting that into your system? And if, if you can't tell what's meaningful, you end up Panicking and creating action to try to respond to something that's actually not important, and yeah, I, I think contrary to what a lot of people think, I actually think that in many cases we have too much action mm-hmm. rather than too little, um, yes. and, and it's more that it's unguided, and the metrics and KPIs could point us in a more sensible direction and away from pointless directions as well.
0: Yeah, and that's where you know I um, you know replied to your tweet. You know, we get beyond the point of what do we measure. Then there's that yeah. important question of, well, so how and when do we react? Um, you know, so I'd replied, well, if this went up or down, is that change statistically meaningful? Or yeah. is it noise in the system? So what you're describing with the stock price, if the stock price is yeah. just fluctuating up and down or the market as a whole, um, people crave that explanation. You know, The Dow was up 83 points today because of something. And like 83 points is basically nothing. So why would you even bother trying to explain that? But if there's a huge drop, that's probably explained by economic uncertainty due to the pandemic. Then that might be a meaningful, you know, this, you know, you know, uh, you know, thousand point drop or something significant. And you know, so when we come back to business metrics, it was one of those lessons I was fortunate to learn early in my career, And and I wrote my book Measures of Success to try to pass along. Yeah. some of those some of those lessons around to your point um, leaders are when they're when they're overreacting or when they 're reacting to every up and down, I would call that overreacting sure it creates a lot of wasted motion to use you know lean language and um, you know people go searching for a root cause that just literally isn't there and you know i I've, I've got a friend of mine who works in a health system who understands these concepts and he's still trying to Um, help his leaders understand because the leaders are still asking for that explanation like that data point looks bad and and a team of people go off to research something that that's not going to be found
1: several months later you're getting a report that cost you several million dollars Mm -hmm. you know for what was essentially a shower thought um not necessarily yeah I, I think it's fascinating because there's, there's so much of that. And like, I, I've seen this with a couple of companies where you have just enormous amounts of data. And I, I'm kind of a, I don't want to say a, a skeptic of big data or sort of as a concept, but a lot of the challenge is not so much the data, but trying to make some meaningful sense out of it. And simply knowing that something happened doesn't tell you why or what you could do to influence it. And those are, those are completely different things, you know. I've, I've seen so much effort put into something that turns out, oh, we've made a f- funky assumption. Um, yeah. <laughs> oops. Yeah.
0: Well, and then you know, there are um, bad conclusions that get drawn about cause and effect where a metric gets worse, somebody you know, demands an explanation or they, they demand action to make that metric better. Yeah. The honest answer might be why, you know, why did the metric get worse? Well, because of nothing. And then a month yeah. later that metric has magically gotten better, meaning it just fluctuated back in the other direction, and now someone might get praised for, hey, good job Cliff, you really responded to that in an action-oriented way and you drove results in your team and pat on the back. Yeah. Better, when the honest answer might be like, well, you just <laughs> you waited for it to re- regress back to the mean.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that whole just regression to the mean is that's a huge factor. I mean we see this in so many things i I remember at a previous company i mean I ended up getting a bonus at one of the companies because of literally blind luck, and we even knew that because I was one of the people who was involved in designing the performance management system or the bonus system and the previous quarter when we had actually knocked it out the park, we'd arbitrarily missed one minor sort of shift on a metric despite having the best quarter we'd ever had and nobody got a bonus. And everyone was, you know, fairly crusty about that because, well, you know, I was expecting a bunch of money and now I didn't. And then the next time we get a huge bonus because of random noise in the data, you know, NPS is up like three times what it was just because, Um, yeah, I, I wish, I wish that it kind of, In in the education system, there was much more kind of basic statistics and sort of forget about like calculus and trigonometry and so on and and teach people compound interest systems and basic statistics. I I would be like the world would automatically be a better place. And, you know, that's probably a very nerdy thing to say because I'm not sure how many other people would agree with me on this. But, um, yeah, I would love it.
0: I I would love it too. And like you said, it's arithmetic more than it is calculus. Yeah. Yeah. Those, uh, those numbers. Um, So when we're reacting, maybe I I think I found a segue to one other tweet we can talk about here. Um, So when people are reacting to everything and demanding root causes that might not be there, we end up being really busy. And so I think you had an interesting tweet about being busy.
1: Uh, Yeah. So this has been kind of my my pet thing for the last probably couple of months is recognizing both as somebody who talks about focus a lot and tries to teach companies how to do that, but also just observing how often it happens that a problem occurs because of a lack of focus. Um, And I talk to a lot of people, they're like, oh, we're so busy, we're so busy. And one of the things, so my tweet was basically, we're so busy you know it's a fancy way of saying we don't know what's important and I, I think i think that's exactly what it is is that if if and and sort of the nuance that i would unpack there is not necessarily that we don't know but we're not actually honoring or respecting what is important we we may know it but we just refuse to do it or we don't for whatever reason and you know the motivations behind that are complicated but i think in our modern day it's become almost a badge of honor to be busy it's like it's just an expectation. And I have that exact
0: phrase on the tip of my tongue. Yes. Badge of honor. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I find it so weird. Like, why would you want to be doing everything mediocre instead of one or two things really well? Yeah. Um, it's hard. I mean, like a lot of these things, it's it's easy to know the theory. It's another thing to put it into practice. But yeah. Yeah. If you know what's important, you're unlikely to, to be all over the map in my experience.
0: Yeah. And there's there's the bragging about how busy we are. Executive profiles often, you know, have have the you know sort of the braggadocious statements about how early they wake up every morning and they're in the gym by four fifteen. And you know this, you know, some people maybe biologically do not require as much sleep as others. Some of that may be the lottery of life, but there's there's this idea of like yeah, um, effort. You know, sheer effort. Leads to success. There are, you know, I mean, I'm I'm not a particular fan of the methodology, but the counter to that is the idea of uh, who's the author of like the Four Hour Work Week.
1: Um, yeah, um, I forget his name as well, but I know the one you're talking about. I've yeah. read the book.
0: But, but yeah. that that sort of throws an interesting counterpoint. To wait a minute, if you could focus on the most important things, uh, yeah, and 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 find those high leverage points that lead to success for yourself or an organization. But still, I think, I, I mean, I guess that idea stood out because it did fly in the face of working. Elon Musk brags about working 120 hours a week or something like that.
1: And I, I think that this is is insane. I mean, it, there is obviously some correlation between, you know, if, you're, if you don't do anything, you probably won't get any results either. Sure. Sure. Um, and sort of that, you know, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Um, like that can also be true at the same time as there's a point of diminishing returns where the, the curve flattens off. Um, and so, I mean, not maybe cost of delay is perhaps a little bit sort of too deep to go into, but if you, mm-hmm. if you look at sort of the, the payoff function in, in an option uh, or in, in sort of a cost of delay world, basically there's, there's usually a very, very small number of things that pay pay off an enormous amount. Okay. Um, and, 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 the goal should be to try to find those things. And that doesn't necessarily have to be a monetary sense. It could be you know, in your own happiness or life sense or whatever impact you're trying to have. But there will be a small handful of things. And that doesn't mean only do three things. It just means as soon as you realize that what you're doing isn't actually going to impact one of those three things, you, you have a choice to make. Um, you can continue diluting your effort or you could focus better. And yeah, I, I feel like, my my general journey to the point where I'm at now is actually, I I don't I'm not less busy in that I let do so much less stuff, but the the quantity of things that I'm actually thinking about and working on is smaller, um, and as a result, those things tend to move further and faster. Um, you can argue whether or not that makes sense, but yeah, yeah. But there's I mean, there's I an know. element of balance.
0: Yeah, I mean I've talked to people who used to work at Tesla. And then there's just what you read in the press where, you know, Elon Musk has this reputation of being, you know, very much a micromanager where I read, I think in contrast the other day, an article about Tim Cook at Apple. And, you know, he was talking about, it was talking about him knowing where he can make a unique contribution to the company and that he did not sit in on all the Apple watch design meetings where Steve Jobs, that was his, he was more of the product visionary, and he would have sat in on all of those and obsessed over different yeah. details of things. And Tim Cook doesn't go to those meetings. Not that he doesn't care, but at some point, you know, he's got a large global company. If he can't trust people to make decisions,
1: yeah, where are where are they going to be? I, I think t- Tim Cook is actually probably one of the most fascinating people for me at the moment. Uh, partly because I'm a bit of an operations nerd but and and so is he yeah. uh but I I think a lot of people put a lot of emphasis specifically in Apple uh on the product vision and I, I think that's important like the strategy and the vision is is definitely making like it it is a huge differentiator but people overlook the operational capability that is needed I mean to scale the iPhone to 60-70 million units a quarter like this is ludicrous numbers and you know how fast they've done that, and with maintaining the quality and the level of supply chain responsiveness, and it's it's just absolutely amazing. Like the the operational capability to me is almost more impressive than the end result of the product, yeah. and I think people overlook that because I mean that that's it's not Tim Cook by himself, but he he brings a lot of that expertise into that organization, and I don't think they would have been able to be as successful anywhere near what they are now. Uh, without that. And yeah, again, it's two sides of a coin. It's not one or the other. It's yeah. and, you need both. Yeah.
0: And as a, an industrial engineer myself and an operations nerd, I look up to Tim Cook as a yeah. industrial engineer and somebody who was really helping Apple um, grow and succeed when Steve Jobs was still with us. And it seems right. like Tesla by comparison does not have a Tim Cook who is strong enough to counteract um, Elon's tendencies, where I, yeah, I, I, you know, they 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 have product vision, and then they have operational execution problems that still plague them yeah. um, to this day. And yeah. there are people out there. I mean, you've, you know, if you've ever fallen into this on Twitter, go. Here's an experiment. Tomorrow, go go criticize criticize Elon Musk on Twitter, and 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 sometimes his followers will really uh, will come after. Yeah.
1: You. I, I have a, a group of friends who are very much long on Tesla, and it's, yeah, it, it's not advisable to criticize because, they, you know, I, I I find it interesting because I, I learn a lot of interesting things because you sort of – there's a, um, a Charlie Munger quote that I, I really like. Um, he says, I, I, I try not to hold any opinion long or – I try not to hold any opinion if I don't know the other side's argument better than they do. Mm. Um, And I I really like that notion. It's, it's for me a very sort of aspirational thing because I think it's a lot of hard work to really invest in, in in understanding uh, I I think the depth of somebody else's argument, especially when you think they're just wrong. Um, But that's kind of exactly why you should understand it because there's probably some nuance inside there. But um, so I find it interesting from that perspective, but I don't know. i my sort of take on tesla is i find the company fascinating i think their products are interesting but i I wouldn't put my money on it personally because that's a different thing you're betting against everybody else not against or for tesla and i see those as slightly different sort of things so
0: and i think some of the response you get is if you criticize an aspect of tesla then people say oh you're you're hoping that they fail i'm like well wait a minute no I think it's a really important company with a really important mission, and I think criticizing their operational shortcomings yeah. is part of like, man, I hope they fix that you know, so that they can succeed. You know, the, if they had been willing and able to learn more from Toyota, when Toyota was willing to help them, they sure. could have been more like an Apple, or if you look at the history of Intel, you know, Intel was not just about product innovation. It was about operational excellence, Exactly, those two going hand in hand.
1: Yeah. I, I find it fascinating how many companies talk about that, and they even hire somebody to head up operational excellence, or they, they have these centers of excellence and all of this sort of stuff. Um, but when you look around, it's like you, you sort of wonder how much of this is actually excellent. <laughs> um, you know pu- pu- putting the coat of paint on it and calling it the thing doesn't necessarily make it the thing right. uh, and in fact I usually find there's a bit of an inverse correlation um, you know if you have to tell us how great your product is it's probably not that great <laughs> um, it kind of would sell itself you know right um, yeah I don't know I think it's interesting there's there's so many things inside there that yeah But the short version is the operational capability is massively, massively overlooked, I think. Um, And I was was talking about something uh, earlier today, actually, this idea that strategy and, and operations are somehow sort of seen as separate domains. You know, we often even will have a chief strategy officer, chief operations or something like this. And it's not that I think that necessarily has to be the same person in every company, but... To do strategy well, you need to know some things about operations, and to do operations well, you need to know some things about strategy. Um, and if you if you make a strategy in absence of the operational understanding of what the business can actually do, mm-hmm. and you, it's just going to be weird. Like it's it will be incoherent with reality, and and vice versa. Why would you build operational capability for something that's not in the strategy? Um, those two things need to be coherent with each other. I think so.
0: I. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I had an opportunity to interview um, Tom Peters recently for my lead hmm. podcast, and um, he, he said something that affected in one of his papers he published, um, execution is that pesky final 95% of what you need to do to be <laughs> successful after this. And people put so much emphasis on strategy and saying, well, yeah. strategy, it was maybe that 5% execution, of course, matters, uh, matters greatly. But the, yeah, you know, and I, the business I think schools, and and I say this, I have an MBA. But the sexy thing is to you know people want to go get a job in strategy more so than I was in a program with people who wanted a career in operations, and we were by far the yeah. minority at MIT. But.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I don't think that, that it's yeah. I, I think that's the the part of the challenge is that a lot a lot of the time those things are taught as if they're they're separate things. Yeah. And people sort of specialize in one or the other. And I, I, I'm quite a strong proponent of, of having more generalists and specialists only in very unique and, and specific cases. Mm. Uh, and as a specialist, it's a good idea to be aware of the general things that you probably won't be exposed to because you went super deep on one or two things. Um, very useful in the right place, but overused. It doesn't make so much sense. You know, So a little bit like using a hammer for the same problem or, you know, yeah, yeah. You know,
0: yeah. Um, so as we kind of start to, to, to wrap up here, um, you mentioned earlier that you had worked for Spotify. I didn't really give you a chance to talk about what it is you're doing now. So uh, maybe sure. you can tell uh, the listeners what, what, what you're doing now, what types of things you're doing and the company Things like
1: that. now now that i've I've had a whiskey, i'll I'll give a more interesting explanation <laughs> perhaps um but yeah I, I was I was leading a team of coaches at spotify you know it that was a fascinating journey when we started out or when I joined the company, we were just shy of seven hundred people uh four and a half years later, we were five thousand um which is ludicrously fast growth. I think it was ten million customers to around two hundred and ten million customers in the same time frame, which is also insane. Um, and I, I find a lot of things about Spotify quite fascinating, but w- what it kind of led me to is is this thing about um, partly about the operational capability and, and the integration that that has with strategy. And that's what my focus is on now. Um, and so most of my energy is is going into a, an organization called the Flight Levels Academy, um, and what we do is we we focus on teaching people how to understand what their operational capacity and capability actually is by connecting the various. I, I say levels, but th- there's nuance on this. Is that if you think about an organization as kind of there's there's three rough sort of groups of levels, uh, operations, you know, where the work actually happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the top, you have the strategy where kind of the direction is set and where you can really assess sort of competitive outcomes and marketplace changes, that kind of thing. And and often what I find is so so often missing, uh, especially in the companies that I've worked with, maybe this is different in others, is that it's it's kind of the coordination between the different parts of the organization. So we have these silos or we have, you know, different services, but actually integrating those things is very, very complicated. Uh, and so we end up, if you're familiar, I think, with uh, Conway's law, um, it, it just says that basically what happens is you you a business tends to design products and services that mirror its internal communication structure. Mm. Um, and so if two departments don't talk or two teams don't talk, it's unlikely that their products and services will be integrated. And so what we try to do is sort of be a little bit of an antidote to that problem by helping people to say, well, what parts of the organization do actually need to connect to create customer value? And so, The modern thing is we focus on agile teams and we say, well, this team needs to be agile and fast, that team needs to be agile and fast, and this other next team needs to be agile and fast. But the reality is that we have an eight to 12 week backlog between each of the teams. Hmm. And so customer value kind of goes, well, somebody came up with an idea, this team took two weeks to sprint through it, and then it waits eight to 12 weeks for the next team to start, uh, and so on and so on and so on. And that's before you start looking at marketing, finance, the budgeting process, the whole planning cycle, and so on. Very quickly, you end up with several years worth of lead time and the solution to this is not to try to make the team fast because that's only a fraction of it it's try to coordinate the organization around one or two things of focus so you know if this whiskey is the most important thing let's put as much focus onto this whiskey and not so much focus onto everything else because then this whiskey will get finished faster um and so you know, we need to be able to visualize and understand what's going in our organization operationally, uh, so that we can see how it connects to the strategy. Um, yeah, that's kind of my focus. Uh, we do a bunch of different uh, workshops and teaching. I uh, work with different clients. We have a community of folks who are practitioners, um, and I think what I like specifically about it is we kind of frame it as we don't have all of the answers we we often joke about it as you know this is our current state of misunderstanding um which i really like it's we we know there's some things we don't know and we're open to learning and i think that that curiosity is such a fundamentally important thing because if you if you stop wanting to learn or you think you know it all that's usually when something comes and bites you in the ear um and at that point you've kind of lost the game so yeah yeah
0: so so if people want to learn more um where can they find you on the web
1: yeah, um, the best way to find me personally is to find me on Twitter, uh, Cliff Hazel uh, at Cliff Hazel. Uh, and if you're interested in the academy, um, there's two things that I can say. One is Flight uh, flightlevels.io, www.flightlevels.io is the the website address. Um, and we also every two weeks we we host actually something a little bit similar to to this sort of a session. Uh, it's live streamed. Uh, it's called Flight Club. Uh, you can find it on YouTube and Meetup. Um, so that's Flight Club. Um, but I yeah, we just rule,
0: I thought the first rule would be you don't talk about Flight
1: Club. <laughs> the first rule of Flight Club is that you always talk about Flight Club. <laughs> So yeah, because we're we're not we're not we're not quite like the the fantastic book and movie. Um, we're trying to prom- promote the ideas, and so what we're we're doing is basically bringing different guests and folks onto the show. Uh, we chat to them a little bit, talk about their experiences, their ideas, um, everything from practitioners to authors to uh, folks doing cool stuff in the industry. And so yeah, maybe one day uh, we'll have you as a guest, and we can we could we could make it a special. Uh, flight club with whiskey edition or something like that could be be interesting even without whiskey is fine (laughs) we'll have to find a better time in the day for you if we're going to do it with whiskey um, (laughs) yeah yeah Uh, so that's 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 what i've been up to all
0: right well cool well i hope people go um, follow you on twitter and and go check that out uh levels.io that's
1: oh i'm sorry that's the one
0: that's the one. Um, so yeah. maybe it's just as a, a closing fun question. We kind of alluded earlier, you know, we uh, we both enjoy the chances to travel internationally and to learn and be exposed to different people and things to eat and drink and learn. Mm. Um, what's the first place you'd want to go travel when we can safely do that again? <laughs>
1: this is always such a tricky question, uh, you know, the, the prioritizing where to go next kind of thing. Um, So, I I had originally planned uh, in June to be in Brazil. Uh, I was going to be in in Sao Paulo for a conference, uh, and we were going to tour a little bit around in South America. And that's been incredibly high on my list Uh, i have a lot of really wonderful people that i know from there Um, my wife has spent some time there and i every time she goes she comes back with something cool and uh, tons of amazing photos and awesome memories and i just like i really really want to go so i I think probably i I would like to see sao paulo um, and then kind of tour around a little bit within brazil and south america uh very high on my list is to see the Iguazú Falls. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I like waterfalls quite a lot. Uh, I'm not quite sure why, but they, there's something calming and peaceful. Uh, and just the sheer power of nature. But right. yeah, I think that would, that would probably be my list. Um,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah I, was, I was supposed to, um, back in May, go to Brazil. It would have been my second trip. ever. Yeah. second trip within a year would have been down to uh, Porto Alegre. Mm. opportunity to go do some teaching um so hopefully in 2021 um yeah pers- i mean i guess yeah if you want to travel back to your tweet if you want to go everywhere then you don't really know where
1: <laughs> sure
0: you want to go yeah um, all right um uh i guess well so this is i guess we'll, we'll tie back to it was a trip that we're just now in the process of um canceling or postponing but we were supposed to have yeah. uh, a family trip uh to france in october so yeah. hopefully we'll we'll get to do that in, in
1: 2021 Yeah, oh, that'll be nice and, and it's say, so yeah. hard to plan and know what what's coming uh with the current times but yeah yeah i think i i mean i was traveling so much last year it was it was insane i think i had almost hundred and something flights last year, which yeah. you know that's the consulting life it it yeah. has pros and it has cons, but i it, I find myself sort of reevaluating a little bit of this and you know, yeah I, I could I could see myself kind of still traveling quite frequently, but more for longer periods than you know two days or a day kind of thing mm-hmm. um, and I like the idea of yeah you know go to France and spend a week or two and sort of immerse yourself in, in the experience. And if you can even stay a bit longer, you know, yeah. and there's, there's plenty of wine for, for several weeks of holiday
0: and, and, that, uh, and that, even
1: some whiskey as I learned today. Yes.
0: <laughs> that will be a wine focused trip. So maybe I'll do a wine focused episode. Jamie likes uh, Jamie Flinchbaugh likes wine yep. too. So maybe we'll mix it up and we'll do a wine episode.
1: That would be cool. At some point,
0: or a, I have, I have a whiskey aged in French wine barrels so we can, combine those those worlds
1: that sounds very good yeah it's making me thirsty
0: yeah <laughs> well cliff thank you for spending uh, your saturday night um sure you are an operations nerd if you're willing to uh do a podcast and talk about things like this on a saturday night so thank you for that
1: of course yeah uh, it's been lovely it's mostly been a great opportunity just to catch up with you and drink another whiskey together and uh i've really enjoyed it so thank you yeah. so much
0: yeah so Ivana, yeah. thank you so I want to um, thank everyone for listening. Um, you can find all past episodes at leanwhiskey.com. Um, you can find us on, I'll mention first, Spotify podcasts, uh, Apple Podcasts, mm-hmm. any place you may find podcasts. I ask you to please rate, uh, review, and uh, subscribe. So um, Cliff, again, thank you. It's great seeing you again. Cheers. I hope we'll see you in Texas again someday.
1: Indeed. I look forward to it. All
0: right. Thanks. Cheers let <laughs>